are we about to see a revolution in personalized medicine? Does gene technology offer medicine that is specifically targeted to our individual needs? The answer to this question, of course, depends on the extent to which diseases or medical conditions are determined by our genes. There is no doubt that there is excitement about the potential of gene technology. Gene editing technology offers hope to sufferers of genetic disorders such as Huntington's disease. But there are many who are concerned with its possible misuse in producing designer babies or in enhancing body function. They are concerned also that it will change how we consider our identity, who we are. But should we be concerned? What makes us who we are? The gene-centric view applies a mechanistic and reductionist approach to what makes us who we are. With this concept, our defining characteristics are in the largest part determined by our genetic makeup. It separates out an inner self in the form of our genome from how we function or our phenotype. The genome is regarded then as a kind of a recipe for life, written in the form of a DNA code. It is a profoundly deterministic view of life and of what makes us who we are. It is also a limited view of who we are and what makes us. We are more than the sum of our genes. We see this gene-centric view expressed in many ways, but all use phrases such as a set of instructions, a recipe, a universal language, or even a cookbook. Of course, all these are metaphors. Our genomes do not and cannot have a life of their own. Our genotype does not create our phenotype. On the contrary, it is part of our phenotype. It doesn't determine who we are so much as being part of what we are. We are led to believe then that much of what makes us who we are is in our genes. We see certain traits or characteristics running in families. We have a sense of lineage and continuity from one generation to another. Genealogy has become a thriving industry with increasing numbers of people wanting to discover their origins. Origins matter. We are firmly embedded in a historical understanding of who we are. We have a sense of the past, of what went before, and of the present and the future. We have regrets, hopes, fears, loves, hates, fulfilment, disappointment, all in a historical context. We have a sense of time and a sense of our moment. We are positioned in space and time. But this has little to do with our genes. It has a lot to do with our social and cultural being. We tell our stories, who we are, through our relationships with others. We make each other. In past times, 
People lived as extended families with grandparents, uncles, aunts and cousins living, if not in the same house, then in close proximity. Many of my cousins grew up and still live in or around a Yorkshire village a few miles outside Leeds. When I visited as a child in the 1950s, it was a small village. Now it is more like a small town. Family was an unquestioned part of our individual identity. People saw themselves and were seen not so much as distinct from each other, but through their relationship to others. People were not defined by their DNA, but by what they would regard as blood or family. The saying, blood is thicker than water, reflected a familial, communal and cultural identity. We are who we are because we belong. A sense of belonging is, I believe, a major ingredient of how we see ourselves. Our relationship with others is like a mirror from which we experience the reflection of ourselves. It is a compass in time and space. And this sense of belonging is an essential part of who we are. Now, there are daytime television programmes devoted to tests of paternity or to determine whether people within a family are siblings. When I watch these programmes, I often wonder whether it focuses on the right aspects of our biology. They pander to this gene-centric view of who we are. This is not to say that paternity is not important. It, it is. But genes do not and cannot make us who we are. Genes are essential in making proteins. We are not simply bags of proteins any more than we are simply bags of water. 80% of our bodies is water. We are not simply vehicles for our genes. We are people with loves, hates, desires and needs, interrelationships. We are people as much formed by experience as by our biology, by our social experience, our interactions with others as by simply our biology. In fact, those social interactions are an essential part of our biology. We are a social being. My father, George, died when I was a child, and whilst I believe he has been a strong influence on who I am, I am never sure exactly what that influence is or how it manifests itself. Is it simply that I am the son of George? In truth, I know very little about him. He was, and in many ways remains, an enigma. My father was born in a very different age. Born in 1896, he was a Victorian. My mother was 20 years younger than my father. When I was at school, my contemporaries had fathers who had fought in the Second World War. My father had fought in the First he enlisted in 1914. He was shot in the first few minutes of the Battle of the Somme in 1916. He survived, and by the end of the war, he had trained as a pilot. I like to tell this story because it reveals the extraordinary fact that my father and I straddle, as it were, three centuries. Centuries of rapid economic, social and cultural change. I sometimes feel... I can reach back and touch the people of the 19th century, 
my father and I had profoundly different, different formative experiences. I once found online a, a photograph of the street in Leeds where my father lived as a child. The street has long since gone, but there it had been, a row of terraced houses. I placed my finger on it, the street where my father would have trod, as if by so doing I would connect with him. I could sense the sooty smell of the coal fires. I imagined the Victorian schoolhouse where he would have learned to read and write, and the horse-drawn trams. His was an age of empire, with the British Empire stretching across the globe. My father's understanding of the world would have been so different from mine. His was an age of steam and horses, not of petrol. In the year he was born, Henry Ford built his first automobile, the quadricycle. Yet by the time my father was 18, he would be flying an aeroplane. Over the years, relatives who had known him would tell me there is a lot of my father in me. There's a lot of George in you, they would say. My mother would also say it. It was a comforting thought, but I wondered what it really meant and where it came from. A reflection of George's in my thoughts. I sometimes wonder what he would have thought about things. We are time travellers, he and I, together, and I wonder what he would think of man walking on the moon or satellites transmitting our messages around the globe. I wonder what he would have thought of the internet, so much has changed in so little time. I left school at 15 in 1964. I had no qualifications. My formative years were a decade of finding myself in the process of becoming me. It was an odd time in my life. I became a musician, I sang blues and folk, and I read a lot. So much of my time was spent in my local library. I read books on history, on science, on politics, as well as great works of fiction. One book that influenced me was the seminal work of the sociologist Richard Hoggart, The Uses of Literacy, which was published in 1957. In The Uses of Literacy, Hoggart documents the breakup of the old class culture, lamenting the loss of the close-knit communities and their replacement by the emerging manufactured mass culture. What Richard Hoggart said in his book is that common language is used as much as a means of identity as it is of communication. In the language of identity, the use of cliché and seemingly meaningless statement is used to exchange recognition one to another. It says... I am one of you. It's part of our identity. I identify myself as one of others. Hoggart warned that this usage was being diluted by what he saw as mass culture. He also warned that rapid economic change was undermining the meaning of social language. I have said that we are grounded in space and time, but what happens to our sense of identity and our relationships one to another if the pace of change is such that our lives are no longer located in space and time, or at least not restricted by it? 
where I lived and worked were once relatively fixed. This was generally so in my father's time. Now mass migrations extend families across the globe. Our sense of being grounded in place has changed. Many live as neighbours only in the sense of living next door or in the same locality, but not in the sense of a communal being. Where we live is just a place and not a sense of social relationship. Our community, our fellow beings are not necessarily living in the same locality. Our closest relatives might live hundreds if not thousands of miles away and with whom we relate more strongly. We are, as it were, localised but not socialised. Perhaps it is this that has the more profound impact on who we are and how we see ourselves. So let's get back to the question Am I determined by my genes? And if we alter those genes, we would be altering who we are. Let's suppose I develop a condition in later life and that this condition, or the possibility of my developing it, is linked to a particular gene mutation. Let us also suppose that the condition could be corrected by gene technology. Would it then alter my sense of identity, of who I am, and as others see me and recognise me? The answer is complex. It might, of course, change my behaviour in some way, and certainly so if it changed my condition. The very thought or potential for it to correct my condition itself might do that. It might change my behaviour profoundly by lifting the burden not only of the condition as it manifests itself, but from the release it gives, my plans for the future, my awareness and expectation of what I can do or what I might want to do. It might alter my sense of well-being. But I think you would still recognise me. And so would I. (laughs) 